Hello, and welcome to the Rooted in Reliability podcast, your plant performance podcast, where we dive deeper into asset management techniques and know-how. I'm your host, James Kovacic, and I will be your guide to achieving industry best practice. The Rooted in Reliability podcast is here to provide you with the insights to improve plant performance and deliver bottom line results to your organization. In case you missed the last episode, you can find the Rooted in Reliability podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on the reliability.fm network. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Now let's dive into today's topic. It is my pleasure to welcome Ron Moore and Doug Plucknett to the podcast. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Good afternoon. So for those that are familiar with you two gentlemen, they're probably living under a rock, but Ron Moore, author, keynote speaker, you've been involved with maintenance and reliability for a long time. I remember your books being some of my references when I first started, so welcome. And Doug Plaknet, RCM Blitz, very, very big advocate of understanding failure modes, reliability-centered maintenance, and all those different aspects. Although super brief, We'll start with Ron. What did I miss about your background that you want to share? Oh, that's enough. I don't, you know, <laughs> you, you can skip all that other BS that's on my resume. So. All right. Perfect. Doug, anything you want to add? Yeah, probably the only thing that, that I would add to that is, I, I, you know, I enjoy telling people that I, I started at the bottom. I started as a tradesperson and went through an apprentice program and I did my schooling at night, and, and so I'm quite proud of that. So I have a very vast, broad experience when it comes to maintenance from actually wrenching to supervision and management and then training and consulting. So yeah. I'll add to that. Doug's the, Doug's the expert here, and he's <laughs> been there and done that. All I do is talk about it. So, you know, listen to him before you listen to me. <laughs> I'm not sure about that now. <laughs> Well, it's great having both of you gentlemen on. What I wanted to talk about, and this, you know, this came out as a result of a question I got asked, and I'm like, oh, I think I got an idea, but let's talk to some people who know a bit more than I do about this stuff. And it's really about understanding age and random failure patterns. And, you know, there's a lot of questions around these patterns. I think there's some big misconceptions of these these failure curves that come out of the Nolan and Heap study. So I wanted to really talk about those. So for the first question that I have for you gentlemen is really, can you highlight where these curves came from and why they're important to what we do day in, day out when we're designing our maintenance strategies? Well, Doug, you're probably most familiar with that. I know it came from the work of Nolan and Heap and then was uh, extended through the work of John Mowbray, you, and Max Smith and, and some other folks, but you'd probably be more familiar with the actual history. Yeah, probably the, the, six, the six that people refer to, which um, is, as Ron just put, uh, people have done different studies of the six curves. The original study was done, done by Stan Miller and Howard Ape in uh, their development of RCM uh, in, in conjunction with uh, United Airlines and uh, equipment that uh, was part of the Boeing 7. 47. Um, and that study was done in the early 70s. Uh, I'm sure there's other aircraft equipment that they looked at and compared to through the years. Uh, several people have, have basically recreated that, one uh, being myself in 2000. Uh, let's see, it was just after 9 11, so probably 2002, 2003 timeframe where I had time to go back and look at uh, a bunch of the RCMs that I had done and said, all right. One of the questions my customers always ask me is, "How do we?" You know, this talks about aircraft uh, components. You know, how does it apply to us? You know, it doesn't. We're different. Was basically what people were saying. And uh, the, the truth is, is well, we're not that different. We all have uh, bearings and pumps and motors and valves and actuators and all the different electronic components. So. When it comes to how they fail, they tend to fit the same types of distributions. I'd like to add a, a little history beyond, you know, before that even. Uh, there's a guy named Waddell from England, and he helped uh, develop the maintenance practices on B-24 Liberator bombers. And he observed some of the same things that ultimately came to be RCM. 
and that is shortly after they would uh, do their 50-hour maintenance on a bomber, the failure rate would be just dramatically higher. And then every every 10 hours, they would do, you know, their next schedule maintenance, and the number of failures in between those gradually declined uh, to a very low number. And then they'd do their, you know, 50-hour overhaul again, and the failure rate would just jack way up through the sky, and then it would gradually decline. So I'll, I'll send you guys that uh, that set of data from his studies in World War II. It, it provides an interesting perspective that the concepts have been around for quite a while. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, you know, when we look at those six curves, and I've seen them replicated in, I think, four or five different studies since the original <clears> one, <throat> there's a main grouping of age-related curves and random or non-age-related curves. What's the main difference between those? Um, well, this is one of those topics that, that we can really go on for a while on, uh, you know, the wear-based curves, there's supposed to be a time frame with, right? Uh, they're supposed to be time-based. Uh, next three that are random-based, the time is supposed to be irrelevant. Um and I can explain why, and Ron and I had this conversation on the phone while we were uh, putting the uh, paper together that we wrote, uh, and he had a grasp of it without me saying. I just more or less uh, confirmed what he was thinking, which was the one that people get most confused about is early infant mortality or the early life curve. You know, they say that's that seems to be time-based to me. But the relevancy is time could be a fraction of a second if we're talking about electronic component. Um, uh, in terms of a bearing, that time frame could be three months. It's still an early life failure. The bearing should have lasted 10 years. If it failed in three months or six months, chances are that's an infant mortality failure, and it's due to somebody not properly installing it or lubricating it uh, or using the right bearing to begin with. Yeah, just to add to that as a layman, I, I think of those curves as concepts. I, I don't think of them as this, this rigid set of data because I think the data is going to vary just like Doug said. And, you know, another one might be a transformer. If it fails in the first year, that's an infant mortality failure or even the first two or three years, you know, when it should be going for 40 before you have any significant work to do. So I... And I, I don't, in my mind, and Doug might disagree with me, I don't see them as being random or age-related. I see them as all being age-related in the sense that there's a time frame associated with them. You just don't know what that time frame is, and it may vary from component to component. And most of them, five out of the six, have a constant conditional probability of failure, which in layman's terms means it's random. So I, I just, I can't hardly grasp this concept of differentiating between the two. And maybe I'm just not smart enough. Yeah, and I think what I discussed with Ron was, uh, <laughs> you know, when I teach this, I, kind of, I tend to do separate them and then basically discuss, the, you know, the first three or something that you want to look at doing a PM on some type of time-based maintenance. The second three, hopefully, if there's a useful... Uh, PF curve, it's something we can do uh, condition monitoring on of some type of sort. Uh, but realistically, where Ron is going is, you know, look at the components that you have and then really make a decision based on the type of component. And if it's properly installed, what would be the best maintenance plan for it? All right. They do all, even if you look at failure pattern D, B has a very good length or should have a good length of. Uh, random conditional probability of failure before we start to see the wear out. So what's the best way to address that? Is it to intervene and do a PM and and then risk seeing the failure rate go up? Or is it to say, let's do vibration analysis or ultrasound and see if we can pick it up through some type of technology before we intervene and uh, do some type of PM to measure that wear? Yeah. Just to add to that, this is is one of Doug's comments, not mine, is that if you do have a, a wear-related uh, failure mode like corrosion, erosion, that sort of thing, 
then you might have a time-based, uh, you know, PM that you might want to do, but that's only true if the design, the fabrication, the installation, the startup, the maintenance, if all those things are relatively stable and done to a high level of skill, then that age-related, you know, time-based PM for its replacement would probably apply. But so few people actually achieve that, that as a practical matter, is very often just not very applicable because of all the errors that could happen, you know, between its normal life and what you do to destroy it. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Making sure that we have, like you said, good build, good installation, commissioning practices, all those things to reduce the probability of those failures occurring after we do that PM. Right. Now, what is considered a random failure? That's one of the questions I get is what is a random failure? Is it a act of God, for lack of a better term, where there's a lightning strike or is it something else? Uh, it's an act of man or woman. <laughs> It's not, it's not doing the things we just talked about. You know, it's not doing the proper design, proper specification, proper storage, proper insulation, proper operation, proper maintenance. And when you, anytime in any of those steps that you induce defects, you're going to get a higher likelihood of having a failure. And the failure will probably show up not too long after you've done the, done the stupid, but It'll show up. It's just going to be appear to be random, and and I think Doug, you correct me that what it literally means is that the probability of any one component in a group is equal to a failure in a group is equal to the probability of any other component failing. Correct. And so you've got a constant probability of failure for a given set of components. And the way you manage that is through appropriate condition monitoring based on the failure modes. It's interesting. Uh, when I first put this section together in the RCM course that I do, you know, I <clears throat> uh, struggled with what to call it. It was after probably doing four or five different classes with facilitators that uh, I came up with the section of the course called RCM theory, right? And that's really when you look at these curves this is theoretically what should that component fit based on what we know about it if we do as ron pointed out proper design proper installation proper maintenance proper operation this is what distribution it should fit into and the theory part of that is how many places actually do that <laughs> right theoretically that we all should be but when it comes right down to it uh there's just so much human intervention and so much human error that goes into it in each of those phases that you have to say, most of our failure modes that we talk about, and there's probably another study that I should do and go back and look at 100 or so RCMs, how many of them are human-related, right, that we actually induce ourselves? And mm -hmm. those can be eliminated. And those are the things that I point out to. We spend all this time and money trying to look to what's the right PM or what's the right condition-based task and realistically, you're going to get the most money out of stop making mistakes. So yeah. going back to procedures, checklists, standards, those types of things. Yeah. yeah. And uh, by the way, uh, Winston Day has done a study on it, and it's about 84% are due to workmanship. Yeah. At, at least according to that one study that he did. It, it may vary depending on how good or bad you are, but it's it's quite substantial. Mm. So circling back to the infant mortality piece, you guys talked about that quite a few times. And infant mortality doesn't mean that it fails within three days of install or six days of install. It is very component and failure mode specific, isn't it, to be considered infant mortality? Yeah, absolutely. All right. All right. If you look at the components that are supposed to fit it, low voltage electronic components, right? That's, uh, you know, I sit here and I go through and, and by the way, I brush up on these things before we have these, right? This is my reliability toolkit for book that I got doing RIT. Over here, I've got my Stan Nolan and Howard Heat book that I've got off in sections <laughs> and, and separated. And I go back to these things because I want to make sure that when I discuss these things that I'm, you know, spot on with them. And uh, yeah, the electronic piece came out, you know, 60s and 50s and 60s. I talk about in my course, this is... Uh, 
there was a big concern in terms of consumer electronics, right? Back then, things were the old vacuum tubes and the TVs and radios, and the reliability of those were junk, and they were looking to what do we have to do to improve the reliability of those that we get out of this phase one and move into something that's more extended life. And I think if you look at today's electronic components, right, the cell phone, for example, all the little things that go in and make this up, the reliability of those is incredibly higher than what we have today. So do they still fit that uh, exponential curve that, that says they're exponentially more likely to fail upfront early life? And then once they survive that, who knows how long the last yeah. Well, the uh, thing I'd add to that is if you subject an electronic component to those uh, perturbations after it's gone through the infant mortality curve, you're going to start the whole damn thing over. Yeah. So, you know, and, and that happens, I suspect, a lot. Yeah, absolutely. So based on what we're seeing now, how do we address and prevent or mitigate the risk of some of these infant mortality failures? Well, we've already said it. Design, you know, procurement, installation, storage, operations, startup, you know, all the things. And then, of course, uh, having a good uh, routine maintenance program based on the failure modes and the consequences. And if you don't do those things, and more importantly, have people trained and have their skills developed such that they can do that, and give them the time to do that and ask them when there are problems how they would address it so they become involved and, and have a sense of ownership for the solution, then you're probably not going to change very much. If all you do is, you know, bitch and moan and complain and harass and yell at people, not much is going to change. In fact, it'll probably get worse. Yeah, you know, at Kodak, we call this the five rights of reliability, right? Design it right install it right, maintain it right, operate it right, store it right. And it still comes down to what Ron just talked about, having a culture that people feel free to come forward and say, how can we improve, right, based on the mistakes they made. Um, I can remember putting a reactor valve in, and, you know, it, it's it's hot, extremely hot liquid, 400 and some Fahrenheit and uh, very molten and having that valve you know it was leaking that was one of the reasons why we had to replace it was leaking out the stem and then when we put it in we put the wrong size uh gasket on it in, in terms of uh you know it was a flex italic and it, it had a little recess for removing the guts of that valve and the liquid went around that recess because we had the wrong gasket in there we had the thing leaking right away well, our boss was furious but i, I said to him look that's the gasket that the stockroom had matched up to that valve, right? Should we have looked at it to, to say, you know, where does it fit in terms of uh, where it meets the recesses? Yeah, we probably should have. We, we didn't, you know, it was, we got called in the middle of the night. We did the job. We did it and, and it leaked. Now we know that's the wrong one. We'll get, make sure we get the right gasket for that valve and then it won't. <clears throat> happen, right. But until you can get people to have good conversations like that, you weren't going to learn anything. Yep. Yeah. Just a personal war story, if you want to call it that. When when I was president of CSI, we'd have these company meetings. And, and one of the things I always tried to do, try to remember to do, is say, look, you guys are closer to the problems than I am. If you see a problem, solve it. If you make a mistake, I forgive you. What would you learn? What are you going to do differently next time? If you make a big mistake, it's my fault. We're not giving you the right tools, time, and training. Now, the truth is, I go back to my office and close the door and go, God, I hope that works. <laughs> <laughs> but the point being, it works if you give people the freedom and really provide them with the tools and the encouragement and, you know, all the support that you can give them. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't be demanding. Of course you should. You should be very demanding. But then... Once you demand, you better support and provide people with, you know, the right environment so they can succeed. You know, Jack Nicholas talks about uh, procedure-based maintenance in, in the Navy and how they dropped the uh, amount of or the percentage in the uh, infant mortality curve 
through having good procedures. And that's something that in the manufacturing world, there's a lot of pushback on to tell a maintenance guy, you got to follow that procedure, right? And <clears throat> the group that I worked in, we started being tasked with writing notes, right? And we struggled with how much you put in there, right? I can remember even at Allied having a discussion with Andy Page about what's the right level. And he says, well, I don't ever talk about what tools are in there. And I said to him, well, we went through that too. And, and what we talked about was it depends on where the job is. If you've got to climb a straight ladder up the side of a distillation tower, right? And there's 320 rungs to get to the top. You better make sure you've got the right tools and that pouch you carried up there with you for that job. So mm -hmm. for that particular job, we'd say, yeah, we're going to go to a level of detail that concludes what tools. But mm -hmm. realistically, it comes down to having that discussion with those people that actually do that job and say, what's the right way to get it done? So that people, we can agree on this and, and so that when the three of us do that job, it comes out the same way every time. Right. And I think that's key is having the repeatability of the job plan. So and we can identify the, where those errors occur, where those mistakes happen and put in activities to, or, you know, actions to mitigate those risks from occurring. Um, you know, if we have three different ways of doing it, how do we know where that variation is occurring? And I think that's one of the challenges with procedure-based maintenance is minimizing that variation so we can weed out these issues like you guys are talking about. Yeah. And just to echo what uh, Doug said about Jack Nicholas, uh, I, my, my first job out of school was working on nuclear submarines. And, you know, you didn't go to the toilet without a procedure. I mean, you, you had to know exactly what you were doing. And part of that came out of, you know, submarines sinking and not having the right standards, procedures, you know, specifications in place. And the consequence of failure is, you know, really, really bad. So, you know, maybe you don't need quite that high a standard in some applications or operations, but the more you can, you know, make things definitive, the more you can involve your people in helping create those uh, requirements, the better off you're going to be, I think, in general. Yep, absolutely. So for the infant mortality, we really got to look at the design, the manufacturer, the install, the commissioning, the operation to, to mitigate the risks of that occurring. But what about that completely flat spot on the curves or... Uh, the curve E, for example, is completely flat. How do we mitigate some of those risks? Is it the same thing or is it different? Well, those are, and Doug, I'll let you jump in here in a second, but that's one of my favorite topics. Uh, that's what we call, you know, what we just talked about, and that's the random failure uh, probability, you know, constant conditional probability failure, which it translates into a random failure pattern. And the way you manage that is by condition monitoring. Look at the failure mode for that particular component or equipment, assess the risk and consequence of failure, and then put the appropriate technique in place. And, and that has to include operators in addressing that. And you got to take that information further once you've, you know, uh, experience that particular failure mode, you got to ask yourself, is that acceptable? Or should do I need to go back into the design, the procurement, and so on to address that more fully so the risk of that happening in the future is minimal? All right, and that's a great example if you have a useful PF curve. All right, if you don't have a useful PF curve, if it's an item that fails that quickly, then we need to start looking at how can we mitigate it? What's the best way to mitigate it? And that's looking at spare parts and job plans, right? Let's make sure, you know, if, if you can't have a, a condition-based test to detect it's in the process of failing, then you better have the part for it available in a, in a time frame that's acceptable to that particular asset. And the reason I say that is criticality has a lot to do with that, right? If we're just talking about uh, a light switch, for example, that, that makes a bathroom light go on, then, no, you know, you probably wouldn't need to carry that for a spare part. We'd say, gee, there's three other banks of lights in there, you can use one of the other ones or something to that state, right? That's not something safe. So let's make sure we got the spare part and let's make sure we have a good job plan that describes what's the best way to replace it in an acceptable amount of time. 
So outside of that, then yes, we're looking at condition based. What can we do to detect that? And once we detect it, then what can we need to plan, schedule, and, and do that job before the failure occurs? All right. So yes. uh, go ahead, Ron. Well, the example I use, of course, everybody has a car, and I like to use a car example. And if the PF interval is very short, what do you do? Well, for a headlight, what do you do? You run to failure. You got two. Mm -hmm. For a timing chain, well, you don't have the ability to detect it, and the consequence of failure is pretty severe. So you go to a, a very conservative time-based approach. You know, that, that timing belt might last 200,000 miles. I know a guy who said, yeah, I tried that once. <laughs> it, it didn't work out very well for him. You know? uh, and then suppose it's, uh, say, PLCs. I know those aren't in cars for the most part, but, you know, PLCs, you pro if it's really critical, you probably have an inline spare and a failover process. So if it fails, you get a red light that switches over automatically to the other one, then you go out and replace that one so you don't lose function. So it, it kind of depends on, you know, the consequence of failure as to what you might do in addressing it through either design or maintenance or operation or whatever it may be. This podcast is brought to you by Iridicio. Be sure to check out Iridicio's IBL blended learning for maintenance and reliability professionals. This SMRP accredited project-based curriculum will take you through all aspects of a maintenance and reliability program and provides you with all the tools you need to generate a 30 times return on investment for your organization and a set of credentials from the University of Tennessee for you. You can find out more at ibltraining.com. All right, so you know if we have a useful PF curve, we're gonna do condition monitoring. If not, then we gotta look at how we mitigate those consequences, whether it's run the failure, stock the right parts, put in redundancy, those types of things. Correct. Now, with the PF, useful PF curve, this is a question I get a lot. And the question is always, is there somewhere we can look up time to failure or a PF curve for all these components? There's got to be some sort of standard or database out there that says, <laughs> hey, when we see this on a bearing, it's going to last this long. Because there's so many of them out there. There's got to be a, a standard. How do we figure out that time to failure or that PF interval? And is there um, a standard? Well, Doug probably knows a lot more about this than I do, but I usually say, talk to the mechanics. Exactly. There really is not a standard. I, I you know, I wish there was. Was I? I have my own in my mind industry standards, and it's based on how often I think we ought to be doing things like vibration analysis and ultrasound. But it still depends on the failure mode, and it still depends on the application. Right and and consequence. You know? Yeah. The, the example I use is, you know, suppose you were doing a calibration on the instrument uh, once a week and you've been doing that for 52 weeks and you found one time is out of calibration. What would you do about that interval? And most people say, well, I go to once a month. And I said, well, I forgot to tell you something. This controls the neutron flux on a nuclear reactor. So what are you going to do now? <laughs> You know, most everybody says, eh, better do it continuously, you know, so, and, and that's really how they do it is they've got three and they cross calibrate each one of those three. And if they're out more than whatever it is, the appropriate standard one or 2%, then there's a problem and you get an alert and you have to go do something. So yeah. that, that consequence comes into play as well. Absolutely. So when we're setting those those inspection frequency, then you both mentioned, you know, rely on the mechanics past experience. So is that pretty much saying based on this operating context, when we start to see this, how long is it going to take to fail and then cut that in a half or a third? And that's how frequently we're inspecting as a general rule of thumb, or is there something else going on there? Well, again, adjusted for consequence. Uh, and it may vary, you know, you can have the same pump let's say or whatever it is and it may vary depending on the application so what fits in one application may not fit in another application and i would go back to the mechanics and, the, and so on electricians and and i would go look at the database and see if there's any telling information in there and and then i would make some judgment about all this and doug add to that yeah it's this is one of those things that's a very difficult question because 
Uh, I base a lot of it on, on my own experience of working with hundreds of different customers. You know, what have, plus my trade experience of, uh, from 20 years of Kodak saying, you know, how often should a bearing fail? How often should this or that particular type of component fail? And then looking at basic on the consequences of Ron said, what's the most cost effective way to do this in uh, will the interval of the task catch the uh, potential failure? Right. So if I wait too long and, and we went through this at Kodak when uh, they were in cost cutting mode, because we had a, a very early group out doing thing, uh, condition-based tasks, vibration analysis, thermography, ultrasound, right? And uh, we also had a maintenance excellence uh, program that we were trying to push in place, right? And in order to, uh, you know, achieve maintenance excellence, you had to be doing condition monitoring, right? Well, some of the guys to, to be able to appease both took their uh, – monthly and quarterly condition-based tasks and push them out to annual and semi-annual, right? Uh, just so they can still say, I'm doing it, right? Realistically, they got to a point where they were so far in between that they weren't likely to catch uh, a potential failure uh, through doing the task, right? And then when they start to have failures, then they say, well, it doesn't work, right? And you go, well, it works if you do it at the right interval. Yeah. Right. And that's really the consistency is to say, based on your experience, if this starts to fail, how long is it going to, la is it going to last? Right. It's not how often it occurs. It's how long is it likely to last? If we start to see it's misaligned, we start to see vibration. How long will it run that way before it fails? Yeah. Right. And making sure you got enough time to plan the job, order the parts. Correct perform right. the repair before it hits that functional failure standpoint. Yes. Right. I want to add another thing, particularly for on vibration programs. Uh, you know, as you know, our, our long suit when I was at CSI was, was vibration uh, instruments and software and all that. The, at that time, I don't know if it's improved or not, but at that time, the very best vibration monitoring programs had about a 90, 95% accuracy rate, you know, with the other five, 10% being false positives or false negatives. And so even in the very best programs, you're still gonna have some misses. So don't be alarmed when that happens, it happens. And so if something's really critical, then you might wanna monitor a little more often, a little more comprehensively in order to minimize the risk of that happening. And, you know, and then the, in the poor programs, well, that, you know, error rate goes up even more. And so if people aren't trained, if they're not using the right probes, the right instruments, if they not, don't, aren't, don't understand the software and, you know, what the analysis really means, then the probability of error goes up even more. And then people lose confidence and they go, hell, this doesn't work. Well, like Doug just said, it works if you apply it properly and understand you're not going to get it all. Yep, absolutely. Now, the other question I get related to these curves that kind of ties back to this is, well, that PDM stuff, it's just going to tell us to repair once in a while. Why don't we just overhaul or rebuild on a regular basis? <laughs> so where do overhauls and rebuilds fit fall into this conversation with the different curves? Well... Um, I think you should schedule time for it, but then validate that you actually need to do the work. And and that requires a certain amount of judgment based on your assessment of the current condition of the equipment. And, you know, allow the time. But then if you don't have to, then, you know, you can either postpone it or, well, you can postpone it and, and do it at a later time. But then that gets into the, you know, things like the annual shuts and so on where you you won't have it won't you don't think it'll last until the next shutdown so you go ahead and do it now so there is some judgment required in there so i'm going to go back to the three words that ron mentioned earlier uh corrosion erosion abrasion right if you have components that are susceptible to that those are things to be looking at during your overhauls right if they don't then i tell people 
you're putting the, the risk of that infant mortality back into everything else you touch. It doesn't uh, suffer from corrosion, erosion, or abrasion. Right, yep. some type of actual wear. I think that's that's great way to put it because I see so many organizations that just default to rebuilds. And have and when you look at the failure modes, it has nothing to do with corrosion, erosion, or abrasion. It has nothing to do with those. Well, you have no idea the discussions I had with the oil and gas folks at the companies that I've worked with, and it seems like any time you go to one of the sites, they're you know unless it's the middle of winter. Uh, they're having some type of turnaround going on and doing an overhaul. And, and I look at some of the stuff that's, that's on that file that they're replacing, and I just scratch my head and go, you're doing this for what reason? All right, some of it makes sense. You know, you know, I've seen uh, monitors and PLCs in those piles, and I'm like, okay, and so those are wearing out on you? And they go, no, what we've got is 20 years old. We're doing an upgrade while we're doing this turnaround. Okay, that makes sense. Right. That's our capital project, and you're keeping up with the times. I get that. Yeah, I, I use the I use the example of my car. It's 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 still an '88 Jeep Cherokee, and it's got over 300,000 miles. And you know, some people might say, "Well, have you overhauled the engine, transmit?" No. Why would I do that? <laughs> you know, I don't want to spend that money doing that if I don't have to. And it, you know, I'm getting about the same gas mileage. Um, it performs, uh, you know, like it did, you know, 10 years ago. I will do it based on the condition. I understand there is a wear-related component, you know, with the cylinders and so on. But so far, I'm not getting any indication that there's a problem because the compression's good, the mileage is good, it, it, the engine runs fine. So. I'm just going to go on condition and hope it's for another. Black smoke coming out the exhaust. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't burn any oil <laughs> either. So I'm just going to go, you know, maybe another 200,000 miles. Who knows? I will reach a point where I can't get parts. In fact, I already have. <laughs> so it makes it a little more difficult. Yep, absolutely. All right, perfect. So when we look at these six curves coming out of the original study here, what would you tell organizations or individuals within organizations that are looking to take those curves and apply the theory behind those to their organization? Any words well, of wisdom or caution that we want to provide? Well, I think two things that I try to stress in, in my workshops, and, and Doug could probably add a little more detail to this, but number one is stop the infant mortality failures. Get on it. Not stop them, damn it. You can yeah. edit that out if you want to. <laughs> and that's, um, you know, I mentioned that earlier. Eliminating those is far more powerful than trying to figure out what the best time frame is for a PM or an unconditioned task. You're going to have, uh, you know, is uh, going back to the Winston Lede study, there's a whole bunch more of those than there are anything else. So let's look at dealing with that. The other piece of this is. If you're going to use this, make sure you use it in conjunction with how the study was done. You know, that we have good maintenance, design, installation, operation, training. All those things have to be uh, done well for this to apply. If it doesn't apply, if you're not doing those things, you're going to have failures all over the place. You're going to have people saying that, that bearings have infant mortality. Right, the bearings are wear based. Right, I, I get that all the time. Oh no, they're, they're failure pattern B. Well, according to manufacturers and according to studies that many people have done, they're actually flat. They're random. Right, uh, yep. Ron's yeah. got the chart that he shows with uh, SKF. I did believe that that, that wasn't. No, it was FAG. All right, FAG that had a study of several bearings. Right, and showed the randomness of them. Right. Yeah. So, you know, step one, eliminate the infant mortality failures. Step two, though, is have a really good condition monitoring program so you detect onset of failure early enough to minimize the consequence of that pending failure. If you can do those two things, 
life is going to get a whole lot better for you. So essentially we got to go away from, you know, using a straight edge or a string to perform alignment. And then once we get stuff installed correctly, aligned correctly, commissioned correctly, then we monitor it using condition monitoring. That's what we really need to do is eliminate the upfront issues and then monitor for its life. Well, but that, that same principle applies to most everything else. It's not just about rotating machinery because the, the work that I've done says that rotating machinery is not the biggest cause of lost production in most operations. It very often gets the most attention, you know, because it's highly visible, but it's not the biggest cause of loss in most operations. All right. Excellent. Now, what makes... What's the thing you think makes the biggest difference in being successful with these these principles and practices of precision maintenance standards, design it right, and then monitor it? Is it culture? Is it a willingness to learn? What is it? Well, from a managerial standpoint, from a strategy standpoint, what I always tell people is, look, it, it, there are four elements here. Number one is the leadership has to create a culture, the word you just used, of excellence, being both demanding and supportive. And that that last phrase they miss. They, hell, they're demanding all the time, <laughs> but they're not very supportive. Yeah. Okay. So and so they have to be what I call executive sponsors. They have to ask about it. They have to talk about it. They have to provide the resources. They have to reward it. They have to punish it. You can't just say, well, go find me some reliability. And when you find it, bring it back, you know, which is what a lot of them want to do. Yeah. You, know, you, you can't appoint a VP of reliability and expect it to happen. It will not happen unless you take an active role. The second thing, in at least in production plants, uh, you got to have a good production and maintenance partnership. That is, they're working together to eliminate the defects in the design, the procurement, the operations, and maintenance, such that you have better overall performance. And then the third thing, you got to have measures that facilitate that collaboration. You know, if all I do is hold production responsible for output and maintenance responsible for fixing stuff and maintenance costs, that will not work. It, it just won't. You, you're going to have competing interests and competing objectives with competing rewards and you're going to have a lot of conflict and it will fail so you got to have some measures that are shared by production and maintenance in order to get them to work together so i'd i'd hold production and maintenance both responsible for maintenance and repair costs i'd hold them both responsible for production output now, they're going to lean in one direction or the other based on their experience and responsibilities, but you got to facilitate them working together. And then the last element is you got to have a process for employee engagement in the improvement process. So once a week, you pick something and you go make it right collectively as a team across functional boundaries or once a month or once a year, you know, you pick the time frame that's suited to the particular issue or problem. And if you have those four elements, I can pretty much guarantee your success. If you miss any one, eh, not so much. And if you miss all of them, you're screwed. <laughs> all right. And I would add one in there that, that your people have to cap- have to have the capability to work to that level. Yeah. Right. Maintenance and operations. Right. If they don't don't have the capability to work uh, to levels of precision or operate to levels of precision and they don't understand the process and how it works, you're going to struggle to, to keep up with this stuff. I, I would also add that, uh, you know, where this came to in terms of my uh, personal experience, it, it came from a, a work group where uh, we had a bunch of guys all, all around the same age and we challenged one another and we took pride in the work that we did. And, it, you know, if, if you and I, James, installed something, I want to make sure mine lasted longer than yours did. You know, there was that kind of friendly competition, and, and we'd rib one another, right, about whose was better, right? And, and there, you know, if you're a good person, right, and we did, we had a good relationship through about 28 guys. You know, if somebody did do something better than you, you went, man, that is cool the way you did that. Show me how you did that, right? Yep. And, and you grow that way. 
right? Because I'll admit, you know, when we first got started involved in this stuff, we didn't have a box that was, was real supportive, right? It was just, uh, you know, old-time supervisor that came in there, and I don't want to say he punched the clock, but he wasn't that engaged with, with what we had going on, had no idea how our process worked. It was, he was somebody to, you know, approve our overtime and check our time cards and fill out a ratings sheet. Uh, we ended up, the next guy down the line was was really engaged and, and real motivating, and that, that helped. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know what? I think of what Doug just mentioned there is healthy competition. You know, it's not vicious, backbiting competition. It's collaborative, supportive, encouraging, yeah. healthy competition. Yep. Yeah. I did an activity where we were doing changeovers and we we're looking at SMED and we posted changeover score, changeover times by crew. And it got to that healthy competition where they were trying to figure out how to shave a minute or two off. And then the other guys want to see how they did that. And it was just healthy competition, right? And it makes a big difference. Yeah. Sure. Now, what is the one action? And I'll, I'll take one from each of you for this one. What is the one action you want our listeners to take away from the conversation today? Is there a book you want them to go look at to better understand these curves? Is there something you want them to do differently in their plan? What's the one thing you want them to take away? I don't know if there is one. I, I just mentioned the four things that I hammer on, or maybe it's six things, you know, leadership, executive sponsorship, that one, uh, production maintenance partnership, collaborative measures, employee engagement. And then as far as these curves, infant mortality, manage it, and condition monitoring, manage it. So that's six things. I'm sorry. I can't do it in one. You know, mine is, it's almost the same every time I talk, James, as, as, as I tell people, go out and fix something. All right, go out and, and find something that, that you know isn't right and make it right. Because every change that we make makes us a little bit better, right? And there's some things that you can, that you can find that you can do in a couple hours, right? There's other things that take weeks and months. But as tradespeople and operators, man, most of the people out there already have five, six things in their mind that they'd like to work on that they haven't put a work order in because they already got a pile of work orders. And I just tell them, go out and make something right, fix something right. I don't care if you, you know, take a valve that's, that's all, you know, got to be insulated and it's all wrapped up with quarter inch tubing and it looks like heck and it's a pain in the neck to change, right? Go order a jacketed valve and put the right valve in place and take all that crap off there. So it doesn't take three hours to change a valve that ought to take 20 minutes. Right. Go fix something. All right. And, I like uh, it. Right. I like fix it. Something makes everybody's life better, not just yours, but the next guy down the road. Right. Absolutely. All right. Gentlemen, where can people find out more about you? I know there's not a lot of conferences and stuff going on, stuff like that, but where can people find out more about you and what you guys are involved in? Uh, I don't know. I don't have a website, you know, LinkedIn. I don't do any of that crap. I don't want to be bothered. So <laughs> you've got my phone number and my email. You, get, you one can share it. Books, get one of Ron's books and read it. Yep. Right, if you want to know, his contact information's there, I'm sure. And if you want to do RCM, get Doug's book and read it. It's real practical. But other than that, yes, I am on LinkedIn. Uh, and I do have a, a website, rcmblitz.com. All right, perfect. So you guys already gave good references. So, Ron, you gave – I always ask for what book do you recommend. Ron, you recommended Doug's, which is RCM Blitz, correct? Right, yep. Yeah. All right. Doug, which book from Ron do you recommend then? Because he's got a few. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, his big, biggest is making uh, common sense, common practice. And then the one that I would probably recommend today is What Tool One. I read that. Ron asked, actually asked me, said, could you provide me some critique on that? I think, Ron, I did write something up on the RCM section, but uh, other than the rest of it, it was pretty tight. Well, uh, thank you. Uh, so that's I, really uh, a, a that's great a book. That's, that's a compilation, guys, from guys like you. So all I did was echo what you've already said. So I, you know, there's no genius here. I just know how to copy and paste. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they're all great books. I have all of those books you guys mentioned on my shelf over here. So all great references. I can vouch for them. 
Have you read them? I actually have. I take okay. I got a lot of airplane time to do that. So, okay. <laughs> thankfully, I haven't yeah. read an airplane in uh, well. It's what, this is the eleventh month. I think the last time might have been March or so. But yeah, the last time. time, I almost got trapped in Australia on March nineteenth. <laughs> Flights were being canceled. Airlines were suspending all operations, and I was in Australia. <laughs> Lord, that was a tight day i'll tell you well gentlemen i am jealous because i've been on an airplane last week and it's still a regular occurrence so kind of jealous but without further ado gentlemen i want to thank you for taking the time today definitely got me more got me thinking more about failure curves random curves all these different things I got to go back and look at the Nolan and Heap study again to make sure I got a concrete understanding. Uh, but I want to thank you guys for taking the time today to talk to us about these curves and the impact they have on everything we uh, do. Read that paper we sent you. Oh, I read it. I'm going to, if, okay. if you're okay with it, I can share it as well. Yeah, share it. Well, don't share it yet. Terry, I think Terry's going to publish it in the uptime here in the next month or two so when when it comes out in uptime you know then after that you can share it because he gets the right of first refusal on anything i write okay so yeah and by the way give my regards to sean and darren same here yep we'll do all right thank you gentlemen much appreciated all right thanks cheers I would like to thank you for listening and remind you that you can always find out more on maintenance, reliability, and asset management at www.iridicio.com and by following our blog. The Rooted in Reliability podcast is a proud member of the Reliability.fm network. I'd like to ask you to please rate and review this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. It ensures the podcast stays relevant and is easy to find by like-minded professionals. It is only with your ratings and reviews that the Rooted in Reliability podcast can continue to grow. I thank you for providing this small but critical support. We'll see you next week when we dive into another burning topic with Rooted in Reliability, your plant performance podcast.